one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 906 for the week of Monday, July 10th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello, hello. As mentioned last time, Kat Robinson is taking a short break, and she will be back soon, so you've got the guys for a little while here. But I promise we still have some great space news for you, so let's just jump right into it. And first, we'll do our usual launch roundup. We'll take a look at some of the launches that have happened and that are upcoming within the next month or so. The first one is uh, SpaceX is back at it again. After the ahem, double header, ahem. <laughs> I know how much you love that saying. Uh, so <laughs> shall we call this one triple header then? Even though it wasn't the same weekend, this most recent launch marked three launches over 10 days, although admittedly it was supposed to be a little bit less than that. SpaceX was originally scheduled to launch on July 2nd. That launch was scrubbed at T-10 seconds after an abort was called with an issue with the GNC, which is part of the ground systems. They tried again on July 3rd, and that one aborted, what do you know, at T-10 seconds. This time, they aborted because of a problem with the abort system. So I've been calling that one abortceptional. <laughs> yes, they had to abort, because if they were to launch, they wouldn't have been able to abort. So they aborted. <laughs> Finally, after taking a day to get things ready and wait for weather to clear, the launch successfully took off on July 5th, carrying the Intelsat 35E satellite for Intelsat. So that launch successfully took off at 2338 UTC, which was 7.38 p.m. Eastern Time, taking off out of Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. So SpaceX on a roll with their launches, keeping in mind that it wasn't just their launches that happened this week as well. SpaceX landed its Dragon capsule after spending about a month at the International Space Station. To be exact, 29 days, 15 hours, and 4 minutes. The capsule successfully splashed down Monday, July 3rd, 2017, at 12.12 UTC, which was 5.12 a.m. Pacific time, where it landed, just off the coast of California. So we had two rockets land and a capsule land, all within 10 days. Yeah, so Aaron, let's not forget, that's kind of the second time around for that uh, that Dragon. I believe that that particular Dragon capsule flew on CRS-4, I think? That is correct. So this is the, the, the first time they're reusing 
uh, the Dragon capsule, and I would assume that that's going to happen again in the not-too-distant future. So, again, SpaceX showing some flexibility and showing uh, what their products could actually do. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, we'll see that, uh, that, that trend continue. I hope so. I mean, it everything looked like it went very well. Uh, it came back with over 1,900 kilograms or over 4,000 pounds of cargo on its return, keeping in mind that at this moment, the Dragon is the only resupply vehicle with down mass capability, meaning being able to bring stuff back. Yeah, that's right, So They're the only uh, game in town if you want to bring something back from the ISS. That's going to change under CRS-2 once... Uh, Sierra Nevada gets uh, Dream Chaser up and going, but uh, for now, SpaceX is the only game in town. Yeah, and also of note with the Intelsat launch, that is now one of the exceptions as opposed to the norm with SpaceX. Uh, that was a non-reusable first stage that was expended as opposed to the CRS-11 one, which that one landed back on land, and the other previous two, which landed on barges in the ocean. Yeah, that was due to uh, the mission requirements themselves. It just wasn't going to be effective enough to go ahead and bring the uh, uh, bring that first stage down. But uh, again, there, there's nothing you know out of the ordinary of the, in that respect. SpaceX has done that before, so uh, not not a big deal. And uh, again, they they got their uh, Intel Sat 35E up and going, and uh, in, they've made Intel Sat happy and uh, Intel Sat uh, customers happy. So uh, way to go, SpaceX and and everybody involved. Exactly. And keeping in mind with Dragon, there's another one flying again. Currently scheduled for August 10th is CRS-12 out of the Kennedy Space Center. So that launch rate continues to go rapidly. Yeah. And and just for equal time, uh, again, I think we, we mentioned this uh, maybe either, either last episode or two episodes ago. Uh, we're going to have another uh, uh, Cygnus launch coming in either uh, September at some point. Uh, out of uh, Wallops Island, this will be a Cygnus Antares launch, so uh, that also is going to be something to uh, to take a look at. Yeah, the commercial program is starting to pick up again, and I'm I'm excited to see it again with you know the two SpaceX missions with an Antares launching again, and like I mentioned, the first part of their launches for the rest of this contract are all supposed to be out of Wallops Island again on their own rockets. So the commercial game is getting really really exciting again. Yeah, and it's it's going to be more exciting once we get a, get that third player up and going, which will be uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation with the Dream Chaser. So, uh, and again, it's just going to add some more flexibility for the International Space Station. Oh yeah, and as a reminder, if you want to learn about some of the science that was on board the CRS eleven mission, take a listen back to episode nine oh four, where we covered the launch and spoke to some of the scientists that had their experiments on board. So. Upcoming launches, we have, most importantly, the Expedition 5253 crew, currently scheduled to launch from the Baikonur Cosmodrome on July 28th. I believe, Gene, they just recently reached an important milestone ahead of that launch. Yes, sir. Uh, the crew of uh, Soyuz MS-05, according to TASS, and I'm looking at uh, the article here from this week, basically saying, quote, a decision has been made to approve the crews for continuing the pre-flight training at the Baikonur spaceport. So the entire crew is uh, is set and ready ready to go. And uh, Sawyer, their, their launch date is when? Their launch date is July 28th, 2017, and that will be launching three crew members to the International Space Station. That includes Commander Sergei Ryazansky, ESA astronaut Paolo Nespoli, and NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik. 
And if I'm not mistaken, sir, uh, Apollo Nespoli was the uh, astronaut that went ahead and took those dramatic pictures of the Space Shuttle Endeavor right after uh, they had detached from the International Space Station. So he was the one who basically took the uh, uh, those historic pictures of a space shuttle actually at her, uh, her extended port on the ISS. And that's one of them going to be uh, an image that... Uh, you know, soon a lot of a lot of folks are not going to forget that. Correct, Paolo Nespoli, who is from Italy. This will be his third spaceflight, his second long duration spaceflight after previously going on Expedition Twenty Six Twenty Seven. Sergey Ryazansky, he is currently going on his second long duration spaceflight after flying aboard Expedition Thirty Seven Thirty Eight, and this will be Bresnik's first long duration spaceflight after having previously flown aboard STS-129. So that is exciting to see people heading back up to the space station, because I know the crew that's up there now has been up there for quite a while. Speaking of awesome astronauts from other countries like Paolo Nespoli, we do have to give a congratulations to Julie Payette, who was a Canadian astronaut who memorably flew aboard STS-127. She is now appointed as Canada's next Governor General. So, having space people in a political position in Canada. This is going to get interesting. I'm wondering, too, if uh, that's going to have an impact on uh, really, really critical science decisions as, as the Canadians go forward and how we are going to respond to that here in the States. So, that's an interesting development, Sawyer. I have, have immense respect for Julie Payette, and uh, I I, I can't think of anybody more deserving of the honor. So congratulations uh, to Julie. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing what our uh, friends up north come up with as far as any type of science policy or even any new space policy coming out of, uh, coming out of this. It, it's it's going to be exciting to watch. Agreed. Julie Payette flew twice into space, by the way. She was also at one point the chief astronaut of the Canadian Space Agency. She was the first Canadian aboard the International Space Station and will now be the Queen's representative. So congratulations to Julie Payette. Bravo. And unfortunately, we have to go from praise to failure. Wait, didn't we talk about this story last time about a Chinese rocket failure? Oh, wait, there was another one. A Chinese Long March 5 rocket took off and shortly after liftoff encountered some undisclosed issue. It had initially been announced that it was actually a successful launch. However, they soon retracted that and said that something went wrong and that they were looking into it. The launch took off at 7.23 a.m. Eastern Time on July 2nd. That's 11.23 GMT or 23.23 Beijing Time. From the Wenchang Space Center, which is the same one we talked about last time. This was their heavy launch vehicle, similar to the Delta IV Heavy. Uh, this is the second flight of said rocket. We talked about the success of the first one earlier, but this one, not so good. Yeah, Sawyer, it's going to be interesting to see what is going to come from China out of this. The As we discussed uh, during our pre-show, I believe uh, Chang'e 5, which is the uh, their, their next uh, lunar mission, was supposed to fly on that vehicle, correct? Right. The uh, upcoming mission manifest for this rocket was the Chang'e 5 lander and sample return mission from the moon. That was scheduled for November. And then next year it was scheduled to deliver the core module of China's next space station. Yeah. And, and that can't fail. 
So I don't know. They're 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 kind of between the proverbial rock and a hard place. If this doesn't uh, doesn't get fixed, I'm sure they they will find the answer. But I'm sure uh, folks over in Beijing are not exactly happy about this. And uh, the old adage, "Failure is not an option." Uh, well, it, it definitely isn't in China. And uh, it, I will say that uh, uh, the next one can't fail. And I think people know that. Right. Because so far in the last two months, if I recall correctly, they are 0 for 2 on their launches. Exactly. And there was, I believe, an editorial over the weekend. I think it was in the South China Sea Post basically saying that, well, you know, failure is to be expected in, in, in space endeavors and so on. And, yeah, they're right. I mean, you know, when you push the edge of the envelope, you expect to, to have a margin of error in there. I mean, just look at the, the Russian program of late, too. They've had had, had several launch failures uh, and, and we're not. Um, you know, we're not exempt either. We've had we've had our own share of in in the past as well, and, and in the recent past. I mean, we've had we've had both Falcon and uh, and Terry's kind of have their growing pains too. But uh, the next one for China, these two are critical, and I'm wondering too if they're going to go ahead and just test launch one of these things first before going ahead and allowing a you know a real payload on on this thing again before they they go ahead and trust it with something like a uh, a part of the, their own space station or um, or a uh, mission to the moon i would hope so but honestly i think that's what this mission was supposed to be in sorts because their first one was november of last year that one worked exactly as intended according to them at least uh and then this one was just a geosynchronous communication satellite that was supposed to happen and that obviously did not happen, so we'll see. And I have to correct myself. They are one for three in the last two months. There was a successful launch of a Long March 4B back on June 15th. The other failure was three days later, the 3B that we talked about last time. Yeah, so uh, there's going to—I'm sure over in Beijing, uh, they're saying somebody's got some spanning to do, and— um... You know, we're never going to know who that is, but uh, uh, they'll recover and they'll try this again. But my bet is they'll probably do a test launch before they go ahead and entrust it to any with any one of those two missions. That's they may err on, on the side of caution. I agree. And they have to get it fixed because that's also supposed to launch their uh, first Mars rover in 2020. Yep. So they have to get confidence back in that vehicle. Absolutely. And their long march in general, which we'll see because they do have a launch scheduled for July 15th of a Long March 3C. Whether that's going to stay or not, who knows, but it's listed. And, and China, too. They've got their own lunar aspirations. I mean, they want to, they've, they've in so much said, they want to put, uh, they want to put their own, their own people on the surface of the moon. And, uh, uh, you know, the, this vehicle, I'll bet you, is going to be sort of a linchpin to that. Uh, so... Well, we'll just have to see how how this all goes and how they 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 deal with the failure and um, if it if they are going to be transparent again. Well, you know, I I don't want to go there, but you know, we are talking about you know, well, China, and they're not exactly the the most upfront individuals in the world. But we'll we'll probably really never know what exactly happened. But hopefully, they'll get their growing pains done and over with for the sake of their program and uh and move forward uh yes that's something we're gonna have to keep an eye on and again like we talked about last episode 
I don't know how much information we're going to get out of this other than, oh, we're going to try again, most likely. But if we do find out, I would be interested to see what happened. Yeah, and and I'm not going to hold my breath to go ahead and, and get any details exactly what happened. But we'll see. You know, uh, weirder things have happened. <laughs> True. So, uh, again, we hope that they get that fixed soon, and we want them to succeed as well. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that and see what uh, their space groups say from their government and what they're willing to release. Speaking of governments in space, a long-lost relic of two different administrations is back once again. The National Space Council was officially re-signed back into action on June 30th, 2017. In case you're unaware, the National Space Council is a group that gets together and helps discuss future of space exploration. The first council was created with the creation of NASA back in 1958 until it was abolished in 1973. It was restarted again back in 1989 by the George H.W. Bush administration and deactivated uh, during President Bill Clinton's time in 1993. And this is its third go at resumption, this time chaired, as always, by the Vice President, Mike Pence. Yes, yeah, so the first time this was chaired, I believe uh, it was uh, chaired first by uh, Richard Nixon, and then the administrations changed over, and then Lyndon Johnson took over. And to be honest with you, Johnson kind of, if, if you know his history at all, he was uh, essentially a real, real rough-and-tumble kind of politician, uh, that didn't mind going going ahead and, and playing political hardball. As such, he was able to go ahead and lead the uh, the Space Council, and the Space Council actually did some really good things under his care. Uh, to revisit the second time around uh, for for the Space Council, this was during the time uh, when we were trying to psych out the space station, and. Uh, Unfortunately, if I recall exactly, the NASA administrator at that that time, uh, uh, Richard Truly, and the administration were sort of at loggerheads over the ISS, or what would become the International Space Station, that it was, I mean, it, it really became a political football to the point where, where, where the program was almost you know, lost. And I'm, I'm trying to be kind to, the, to to that vice president, Mr. Dan Quayle. I don't think he was that much of a strong or effective leader with the Space Council, to be to be perfectly blunt. So I don't think the Space Council was able to make a dent in things under under Mr. Quayle. Un, under uh, Mike Pence, that remains to be seen. Uh, from what I've been able to to glean from Mr. Pence, and this is just you know, my personal perceptions. Is he seems to be enthusiastic about about the job. He seems to be wanting to learn. He may not know much about space policy right now, um, but he seems to want to learn and seems to be you know want to go ahead and drink from the proverbial fire hose, if you will, and try to go ahead and and make this thing work. Uh, whether it will or not, I'm cautiously optimistic, but. Um, I, I will emphasize cautiously whether it's going to make a dent or not. Who knows? My question is, what did we get out of the council in the past? I mean, obviously, we have a good idea of what happened in the very early days, all the way up to the early 1970s with Apollo. What did we get mainly out of, let's say, the second iteration from 89 to 93, besides the idea for space station freedom that became scrapped and became the ISS? 
Well, that wasn't the idea. In fact, the, the Space Station Freedom was around long before that iteration was around. It was actually uh, proposed in 1984 by then-President Ronald Reagan, and it was done during a um, State of the Union address. What did we get out of that uh, iteration of the Space Council under um, George Bush 41 was not much. Um, I think we got a lot of bickering, and it turned out to be, with apologies to uh, uh, William Shakespeare, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, because I don't really think that we got anything out of, out of that. I mean, I, I may be wrong, but I think um, I could have sworn Shuttle C was part of all of that. That's something, you know, dear God, I wish we actually did. If, 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 if we had done Shuttle C, I think we'd be in a different world right now. But... Um, I don't think we got a whole lot out of it, Sawyer. I'll be I'll be blunt, except a lot of uh, a lot of bickering, and hopefully that that's going to be held up as an example of what not to do. It, this is going to be up to uh, how uh, how Mike Pence treats it and how uh, how seriously it is treated, and and so on. And hopefully it's able to go ahead and drive some some new space policy home. But again, I'm because of what's happened. During the second iteration, I'm, I'm only cautiously optimistic. I'm also a bit interested in terms of who is going to be on the council, because we know, you know, Vice President Mike Pence will be chairing it, but who else is going to get involved with the council and how involved they will be and, you know, their opinions on our space industry to begin with? Because we've got SLS hanging in the balance. We've got a whole bunch of commercial crew taking precedence as well, and the other big thing is that we really still don't have a destination, although we do have a president that is currently saying we want to make space the forefront again, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in our next story. So we have what seems like the potential to finally set a course for SLS, give commercial versus governmental space their segments, and finally set us on a course, but will it? Well, to uh, answer your question, Sawyer, and this is something that uh, uh, Vice President Pence did cover in his speech, which we'll get to in a little bit, but uh, he said, quote, the council will bring together leaders from the president's administration, including our secretaries of state, defense, commerce, transportation, homeland security, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and our national security advisor, our intelligence leadership, and, of course, the NASA administrator. And uh, right now we don't have an, you know, we have an interim NASA administrator in Robert Lightfoot, but the administration hasn't really named one. In fact, I believe there are almost half the administration really is, is, is still waiting for, for critical appointments. So um, uh, those are the individuals that will be responsible. With those, with those people, I think you might be able to go ahead and get something out of that that is that, that's substantive. But whether whether or not it's actually followed through on, different story. You know, it, I think it's going to take some time, but it sounds like there's some spectacular potential with this that I, I'm excited for, finally. Yeah, there. The, I mean, Sawyer, I'm with you. The, there is potential here, and that's why I'm cautiously optimistic. But I'm also thinking, too, of, of the past and, and the second iteration, which I'm I'm more familiar with because I I, I saw it. Uh, so I'm again. That's that's why I'm kind of cautious. But who knows? I mean, with good strong leadership, this could go somewhere. And is Mike Pence the person to do it? Uh, it sounds like he wants to be. 
and he wants to make sure of it. And he's he's got sort of a, uh, and 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 this is going to come out wrong when I say this, and I hope it doesn't because this is something that that kind of I have too, almost like a, a childlike wonder um, about the space program and and and, a, and an immense curiosity about about the tools in, involved and so on. And I think that's going to carry him through. And if if he really, really wants to put a dent in things, I think he's going to have the advisors to at hand to do it. As long as he gets the resources, again, I mean, there's a lot of potential with this. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head, Sawyer. You need the resources. And that's something NASA has not, unfortunately, been blessed with in, in the past. And I, I'm, I'm lukewarm about this administration following through on that, too. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yes. Which if you get a chance to go back on YouTube and watch the official signing ceremony that he did with it and the president's speech beforehand, it sounds like there is some potential, but at the same time, if you do watch that speech, be sure to watch Buzz Aldrin's reactions in the corner as, uh, (laughs) his face was extremely expressive in his thoughts on what our president was saying. (laughs) I'm not going to go there, Sawyer. I know what you're talking about. And I, I, priceless that's all i'm going to say priceless i don't think i've ever seen anybody give that exaggerated of an eye roll on television (laughs) even in these terrible little you know straight to movie you know tv movie things oh still some of the worst but yeah uh, yeah, definitely go take a look at that on youtube and uh you'll see what we're talking about we continue on with uh our discussion about how Mike Pence really seems interested in this now with the National Space Council coming back. And we know some of this because he recently took a tour to the Kennedy Space Center. On Thursday, July 6th, 2017, Mike Pence got a tour of the Kennedy Space Center, got to take a look at some of the parts being built for Orion, and then gave a speech on his thoughts of the future of NASA and space exploration inside the Vehicle Assembly Building, backdropped by a flown Dragon capsule, the Orion capsule from EFT-1, as well as a Boeing CST-100 Starliner capsule. Gene, there was a lot that was talked about in this, and it all sounds promising, but go ahead, I'll let you take this. Yeah, the gang was all there in the background. It was really, really kind of cool. In fact, I I talked to somebody who was there, and there was actually a lot of optimism. The area seemed up. It seemed to be kind of happy that that the vice president was uh, coming by to visit, and they were very, very eager to, to hear him him talk and, and so on, and they were very eager to hear, him, hear what he had to say. Um, I was not personally expecting any policy decisions coming out of this. Uh, I, I thought it was just going to be sort of a, a yay us kind of, kind of speech um, that, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, try to go ahead and get this get the ship back on track again kind of speech which it was um i had some other i'm going to go ahead and 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 add some other thoughts a little bit a lot of this was uh talked about um from the aspect of trying to make you know the united states space program great again and my thought is it hasn't stopped being great now i know where that comes from that comes from uh, President Trump's uh, campaign line, you know, make America great again. Uh, but like that 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 line, um, I don't think it the, the U.S. space program stopped being great. I, I think it it's right now trying to rebuild some things, 
it's going through some growing pains a little bit, and uh, it's kind of trying to find its own way again. But it, it really hasn't stopped being great. I can I can point out the commercial path that's going on, as we talked about earlier in the program, and how we now have two autonomous spacecraft capable of uh, joining with the International Space Station. Something else we did not we did not have a few years back. Uh, we have now uh, three spacecraft in the pipeline: CST-100, the uh, SpaceX Crew Dragon. And of course, uh, the the Orion uh, exploration vehicle, which is going to be the linchpin for for further exploration, um, we don't have currently the goal yet, but uh, I, I think that's looming. I think NASA too, in the not too distant future, I think next either this week or next week, is going to be putting out their um, their robotic uh, uh, plans for Mars. But we've never stopped really being great. I mean, I, I could point out to um, to New Horizons. I can point to the Cassini mission. I can talk talk Juno, which we're going to talk about a little later. But uh, uh, I take some some difference with the vice president in in saying make space great again. Um, but that was really the gist of it. That that we're we're, we're here. We're going to go ahead and and give NASA the tools it needs to do its job. And that that, that was essentially the one of the other crux, cruxes here. It, whether whether or not this is going to um, lead to something, uh, hopefully something a, a commitment from the from the administration to uh, to continue uh, the mission um, and continue you know. Possibly uh, SLS and Orion. That remains to be seen. Um, I think the budget that's been outlined kind of thinks, kind of speaks for itself, and that the administration does want to support the space launch system. It does want to support Orion. But the the other takeaway from this is um, saying "moon" at NASA apparently is not a four letter word anymore. It's something too that. Um, well, who knows? I think he, I think Mr. Pence has kind of left the door open a little bit, and he, I think he quoted that. We will return our nation to the moon, we will go to Mars, and we will go still further to places that our children's children can only imagine. We will maintain a constant presence in low Earth orbit. We will develop policies that will carry human exploration across the solar system, and ultimately into the vast expanse of space. It, it, that, to me, sounds like NASA's kind of thinking about a return, you know, piloted return to the moon. So the door seems to be wedged open a little bit, and that kind of goes hand-in-hand, hand too, with, with, sorry, with something else I, I've mentioned on this program a couple of times. With the um, Space Launch System and, and with Orion, they're flexible enough. Both of those spacecraft are flexible enough in that you want to do cislunar, yeah, we can do that with both of these spacecraft. Um, you want to set up shop uh, around the moon, have a have an orbiting platform around there, yeah, we can do that with these two spacecraft. You want to land on the moon? Well, we've got the linchpin for that. All we need to do is go ahead and, and build a lander. And you want to get to Mars? Well, yeah, we've got at least the beginnings of that infrastructure here. Plus, with our commercial partners, uh, they can also assist in getting that infrastructure together. Uh, so, 
you know, I, I that that's why I say when 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 Bill Gerstenmaier was kind of setting this whole thing up, I thought he was he was a genius in that he put flexibility into this, and um, it's okay to say moon now in the halls of NASA, and uh, uh, I think that's really really the takeaway from this speech. So we'll just have to see how that develops over over time. But I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, we may be talking about a piloted return to the moon. And I'm sure a company like David Mastin's company is waiting to jump in on that and hopefully, you know, build a, a, a lander for, for NASA. Yeah. Uh, going back to a bunch of things we said in there. Uh, first off, with the whole, you know, making space great again, what vehicles are you standing in front of? You know, th that is that we're in the peak era, in my opinion, right now of we don't have these big, giant, bulky vehicles that are expendable. We've got reusable vehicles. We've got three of them behind you with more in the works that will all be launching, if not have already launched within the next five years. I mean, there's a lot of potential there. The big thing is, yes, we finally have Moon, but... You know, it's really setting a final destination, and it's great in all that he's excited about it, he's going to be taking the role in the Space Council, that he's, you know, starting to outline policy, but the question is whether there's going to be any backing to that policy. Because right now, in terms of what NASA has been given so far, there's the National Space Council, and there's the asteroid recovery mission being cut. So that's about all we have so far. Like you were mentioning earlier, we don't have a NASA administrator yet. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what the destination becomes. They have emphasized that, yes, they want to focus on human exploration again. And Mike Pence emphasized that while he was at the Kennedy Space Center. And, you know, continuing with the president's message of, hey, we want to continue space in the manned exploration and continue going outward. It's just how are they willing to support that and how far are they willing to support that, both with people, resources, and most importantly, funds. Yeah, Sawyer, I was nodding my head when you were talking about backing all of this up. I mean, you can go ahead and promise everything, but if you don't have that individual that's willing to go ahead and say, yeah, we're going to do this, and yeah, I'm going to write the check, then, you know, why bother? With reference to the asteroid redirect mission, I think everybody kind of knew that this was going to be Obama's constellation. It was kind of a dead man walking anyway. Um, it did not have a lot of public support out there. Uh, and the the science was kind of, well, dubious, and it took the Small Bodies uh, uh, Advisory Group a little bit of time to to get on that bandwagon. They eventually did, but I think it was uh, uh, too little too late, uh, and uh, we, we kind of lost arm. The good part about it is that the solar electric propulsion and other technologies that were being developed for that mission are still going to be in place. They're still going to safeguard that, and we're still going to do solar electric technology. We're still going to be doing some other technologies that ARM was going to demonstrate. We're just not going to go ahead and we'll put a boulder in orbit around the moon and, ha and visit it every once in a while. But, yeah, I'm, I'm totally in, in agreement with you, Sawyer, on, on the fact that you need somebody that's willing to go ahead and write the check. Will this administration do it? Not sure. Uh, they've already sliced and diced the budget a little bit, but uh, those slices and dices didn't go through. The education uh, division, I believe, has been reestablished under the new budgetary constraints that Congress wants to put through, so that's not a, a huge deal. Um, I'm watching the earth science stuff, though, very carefully. I think what we're doing there is penny wise and pound foolish. And I'm looking at 
at Noah's uh, plight, and I'm not happy about it either. So those are things that we need to fix. But but going forward, are we on on, on the right track? Yeah, no. Uh, we'll just have to wait and and see what Congress does with the rest of this. But yeah, y- you need somebody to write the check here. I'll be honest, though, I think we're closer now than we ever have been in the last 10 years because we've had all the talk of, oh, you know, we're in end shuttle and then nothing else. We're finally getting somewhere beyond just the EFT-1 test flight. And, you know, for once to have open backing from someone within the administration is surprisingly refreshing. You know, of course, President Obama was supportive of the space program, but it was never always openly said you know, he had, of course, a trip to the Kennedy Space Center, but it was like you were expecting with this one, more just to be a rousing the troops as opposed to actually starting to outline some policy. So, yeah, I think, however, though, there he did announce that uh, that was basically the beginning of uh, of the uh, the fight that uh, <laughs> that went on pretty much for the rest of the administration. I believe that was in February of 2010, where he announced that the you know, Constellation was basically dead and that he was going to go ahead and turn NASA essentially into a technology kind of agency with with no spacecraft and and basically throwing the whole thing over to uh, to commercial. And that kind of went over like a, you know, a lead balloon in Congress because the whole thing was done without their their consent or the possibility of debating it. Um, I, I think, though, that at this point, I think we're in a better position than we were with Constellation. Constellation was hurting badly, uh, and um, uh, but on this point, I, I think SLS is in a much better posture. I mean, SLS is real now. There's actual hardware over there. Orion is real now. It's flown already. So I, I think the momentum's there, and I don't think you can stop that momentum at all. I think it's too late to try to stop it, and I think this this administration— sees the light in that and, and hopefully um, hopefully understands that. Whatever you may feel about the politics of the current administration, whatever you may feel about the current president and the vice president, setting all of that aside, because I'm trying to keep this as apolitical, at least personally apolitical as possible, you can't have this discussion without it being political, but putting that aside, this is... Nice to see us getting somewhere in the right direction with the U.S. government supporting our space program, even if it is just, you know, hopping on, like you were saying, the, you know, seeing the light and jumping on board the wagon. Either way, I'll I'll take all the support we can get. Sorry, I'm with you on that a thousand percent. And yeah, I'm with you on the other side of that, too. So (laughs) my lips are sealed. Yeah, it's a long way from here to happy days, though. So let's just hope for the best. I, th- I think Mark, you put it the put it the best way anybody possibly could. We're you know I think we're going to have to you know if you'll excuse the the old adage, uh, we're going to have to go through hell to get to heaven. And this is something for sure we are going to have to keep an eye on. And uh, well, I'm really interested to hear what other people think about this because you know we all seem to be relatively in agreement, but that's not always fun. Want to hear what everyone else is thinking on this? Send us your thoughts. Mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Tweet us at Talking Space, post it on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Talking Space, or find us on Google Plus as Talking Space and post it there. We really want to know what you guys think about this, or at least I do. Now, I know there was a slight issue while Mike Pence was at the Kennedy Space Center involving certain things he was not supposed to touch. However, we here at Talking Space are not going to touch that one and just continue on with the show. Sticking a little bit with uh, government and policy, 
Uh, everybody in the United States is aware of the five main military branches, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. Well, there is money in the budget to create a sixth, being the Space Corps. The upcoming budget will create the new U.S. military branch Space Corps, moving a lot of the previous tasks that were handled by the Air Force to this new section of the armed forces. Gene? Yeah, Sawyer, I don't know, man. I mean, do we really need Starfleet Command here right now? Um <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to make fun of it, but that that's that that's what I'm thinking of, and the U.S. Air Force has been doing pretty well with this. I mean, that's how the Air Force started anyway. Uh, it was basically the Army Air Corps, uh, and then an offshoot of that started, you know, the United States Air Force. Do we really want to go ahead and create a you know a sixth branch? Um, I'm not sure yet. I think the Air Force is doing an adequate job. Of this, I'm of the opinion if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, I don't understand why a th why a sixth branch of the military needs to be created at this point. What's next? A cyber warfare branch too, maybe. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry for giving somebody ideas, but it's it's just do, do we really need this? I don't think so, but be intriguing. The Air Force is saying that they want it dead, essentially, because they're handling it just fine, which I think they are. But it would take it and sort of civilianize it a little bit and militarize it a little bit. But a lot of it's more of the tracking and stuff that's already being done by the Air Force with their space wings and their space divisions. What I also found interesting about this is the different ways that it's been covered in the media, uh, seeing one of them calling it space warfare. At last check, even though it would be a military branch, more like the Coast Guard. You don't see a lot of uh, warfare with the U.S. Coast Guard. They do a lot more protecting, observing, and assisting than the actual fighting as opposed to something like an Army, Navy, or Air Force. The, the U.S. Coast Guard has been involved in, in some of the uh, uh, skirmishes abroad. Um, but I'm uh, talking about more of their... I Of course, I respect everybody who's been in the military, but I'm talking more of their day-to-day -day functions is less about the actual fight as opposed to helping protect the seas and the oceans and the borders around the country. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, they're to stop, you know, they're to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, folks are safe out there, you know, anything having to do with maritime operations within U.S. borders, they're, they're there to protect. But I think uh, I agree with the U.S. Air Force. I think they're doing quite a good job right now. I don't think there's a need for, for a sixth branch. Uh, I think it just is going to add another layer of bureaucracy. It's just adding bureaucracy as opposed to assisting what's already there. I'd like to see that money put more in towards, you know, assisting the current Air Force Space Division, help improve their tracking, and, uh, I don't know, maybe put it towards other things like being able to track near-Earth objects more so than warheads, but that's just personal opinion. So I have a feeling we're more likely to get hit from something from space as opposed to something launched from space. Yeah, agreed. But that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day, but... Another interesting topic, and as this goes through the budgetary process, we'll certainly have to see what happens. Keeping in mind that the last new branch of the United States military that was created was the Air Force back in 1947. So, let's move out into space finally. We've talked about all the stuff back here on Earth. Let's head out to Jupiter and the Juno mission, which uh, is creating quite the storm back here on planet earth with its latest pictures gene 
I'm over <laughs> at um, the, the Mission Juno page, uh, and I'm looking at some of the uh, the images that have just come back. Uh, during the uh, uh, Perigeo 7, which is, uh, I believe, the, the second uh, uh, deep dive that um, that Juno has made in, uh, in around Jupiter, uh, this this particular flyover, which, by the way, uh, you folks out there, anybody who voted, uh, selected this spot. This is all come. These photographs are all coming to you from JunoCam, which is the camera on board the Juno spacecraft. On this pass, it took a look at a 350-year storm that has been raging on Jupiter, the the the, the Great Red Spot, and Sawyer, the pictures that have been coming back are just absolutely exquisite. To also add something here, Juno does not, repeat, not have an image processing team. Okay, they are relying on volunteers to go ahead and take these the raw images that are coming back from, from the Juno mission and process these things and post them up to the uh, the Mission Juno website, and to the folks that have been decided that they're going to take on this Herculean task, uh, and and go ahead and 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 process these images, my hats off to you. There's one I'm looking at right now that shows all the eddies and currents in 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 this this storm, and it has just I mean it, it, it's amazing. Um, if you guys are interested in taking a look, the website is missionjuno.swri.edu, and uh, and go ahead and, and visit this thing. We'll have this up on I I hope in the show notes, but it's it, it's just, it's just incredible. Keeping in mind too that JunoCam, if I recall, was actually just an afterthought. It was essentially a public outreach mechanism. And because of the nature of the camera, they didn't really expect it to last all that long because they thought, you know, the the, the Juno spacecraft already is built like a tank uh, to go ahead and withstand the, the 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 incredible radiation in and around Jupiter. We didn't expect JunoCam to last as long as it has, and the, the photographs again that it's been just sending back, and the folks that have gone ahead and volunteered, the citizen scientists that have volunteered to go ahead and process these images, these are jewels. And folks, again, my my hats off to all of you that are participating in in JunoCam, and participating in, in in this mission. And you too could go ahead if you're if you've got to. Uh, some good image processing skills can join the, the the team of volunteers that are taking these images and really, really doing some magic with them. Uh, there are certain criteria that you have to follow. Those criteria are available at the site. But uh, uh, if, if you're good with photo imaging, this is your chance to go ahead and make a real contribution to planetary science. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's spectacular. I love the idea of citizen science projects and you know, these are some of the most stunning images we've ever gotten of Jupiter and the closest we've ever gotten to this amazing red spot, this crazy storm happening on the surface of Jupiter. And it's all because of the public and this one little camera, this little afterthought of a camera. And uh, it doesn't get more amazing of a story than that. And I think that's spectacular. 
Yeah, Sawyer, more to come on this, too. Uh, this has just been, been an amazing out, outreach program for, uh, for NASA and for, the, and for GINO. And again, it's, it's delivering some great science. To, to give you an idea of what, what, what GINO is, GINO is actually trying to look under that cloud deck and get an idea of what's happening inside the interior of Jupiter and what's driving it and so on. So GINOCAM, again, was not really the prime directive of this flight. It was, again, essentially just an outreach mechanism. And I remember when it was presented at the Northeast Astronomy Forum, I believe back around, I want to say 2014, uh, when a representative was over there, um, he, he said, basically, we didn't expect this thing, we don't expect this thing to last past, close past number three or four. They expected it to be burnt out by that time because of, because of the high intensity radiation flux. Here we are, a perige of seven, and it's still hanging in there. And fingers crossed and knock on wood, I hope it continues to hang in there and, and deliver some just, uh, you know, mind-blowing pictures of this, this incredibly active world. So, again, this is this has just been a treasure trove. Exactly. And uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on more of these pictures. And, hey, if you've got the skills and you want to fix up these pictures, go for it. You can only get better from here. All right. So maybe there's another satellite out there that will be able to do something just as amazing. And it's going through its testing, except this one will be going the opposite direction in the solar system, back towards Mercury. And uh, Gene's got a fun name, right? Yes, this is ESA's uh, Bepi Colombo probe. Uh, it is heading toward Mercury in October of uh, 2018, and uh, it will be flying uh, via a Ariane 5 out of uh, Coro French Guiana. Uh, and they expect the spacecraft to uh, arrive at Mercury at the end of 2025. Uh, this past week, it took a bow in front of uh, the press, and uh, the press was able to go ahead and and uh, take some some good photographs of of the spacecraft. There's some uh, high-res photographs on the uh, ESA page. That's ESA.int. And uh, this is a, a joint mission between uh, uh, the European Space a Agency and JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, to go ahead and do a further reconnaissance of the planet Mercury. Um, this is actually two spacecraft. Both of them will separate from each other. They'll they'll go together. Um, pretty much out to, to Mercury. But once it gets in the vicinity of the planet, both of these two spacecraft will separate and go on their own separate orbits. Uh, what it hopes to do is take a look at Mercury's interior. It's uh, the, the surface of, of the planet. It will take a look at the, uh, the uh, magnetosphere of the planet. It will take a look at the... At there is an atmosphere there. It's, it's kind of tenuous, but it's there. And also take a look at some some data that was kind of left behind by NASA's Messenger spacecraft when it was there, and pick up Messenger's mantle and try to answer some questions that Messenger kind of left behind, some riddles that uh, that it still had for us. So this is going to be an exciting mission. Again, it's scheduled to launch in October of next year, and uh, uh, if that goes well, again a uh, arrival at Mercury in the year 2025. So a mission we're going to be watching and reporting on. So good luck to ESA, good luck to JAXA, and uh, 
let's hope that uh, they'll go ahead and, and successfully pick up the baton left behind by our probe messenger. Oh, yes. Super exciting. And uh, I thought messenger was great. I can only imagine what we're going to get now out of uh, Bepi Colombo. So, <laughs> sorry, I still laugh saying that every time. Best of luck to the entire team working on that. And we'll certainly keep an eye on that when it launches next year. And hopefully we'll get some images and science like we got back from messenger and like we've been getting back now from Juno. And finally, uh, we're going to wrap things up here with, believe it or not, taking a look at some stories from other podcasts. Mark, there was one in particular I know that uh, you brought up that was really interesting, and I'll pass it off to you first. Okay, well, there's a podcast that I listened to, oh, for a couple months now. It's a uh, NPR-based uh, podcast out of Orlando and station WMFE. The host is Brendan and he has a podcast called Are We There Yet? So if you want to search for it, just type in Are We There Yet? podcast, and it'll bring you to their, uh, to their page, and you can subscribe to it. They recently had an episode where he interviewed one of the project managers that's been working for quite some time on Pad 39B at Kennedy Space Center, and they described the uh, changes and the improvements that have been made to Pad 39B and some that are still ahead, some that are still being worked. So if you'd like something interesting, and I like the title, it's got to be about the best uh, title or uh, hashtag type type name that I've heard of, Are We There Yet? And it's the Space Exploration Podcast. I think you'll enjoy it, and uh, just wanted to drop that on you. Awesome. Yeah, that I'm really interested to hear their uh, 39B pad tour, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, of just everything going on with it, and it's going to be exciting to hear that. And uh, if I may, I think it's second best name. I think Talking Space <laughs> is still the best personally, but I may be biased because I helped him up with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that. And uh, Gene, you had one as well. This one is actually a new NASA podcast. That's correct, Sawyer. Houston, we have a podcast, it's called, and it's out of the Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston, Texas, uh, or should I say Clear Lake. Uh, it's hosted by a gentleman by the name of Gary Jordan, and he will be covering various topics in and around the Johnson Space Flight Center that, that cover human spaceflight. I believe the, the first episode is up. It was published back on July 7th, and uh, it features uh, PAO Dan Hewitt uh, providing a, a nice overview of the International Space Station, how it works, why it's there, uh, some of the upcoming episodes that they say uh, is a profile on, on some of the uh, uh, the new uh, astronaut candidates and uh, some of the, the scientists and, and engineers in and around uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center. They're trying to get it t down to about 45, 50 minutes per episode. Hats off to them, and if it's something new you want to go ahead and take a look at, uh, by all means, and tell them that uh, we sent you over there. Of course, we have to support the NASA podcast themselves. They've been great to us, and, you know, we started this because NASA didn't really have much out there, and we wanted to spread the word about space. And so, you know, good to see them getting involved as well. So more to add to your podcast listening library in addition to Talking Space, which uh, we hope you'll continue to listen to. As next episode, we have a very special episode coming up. I will be at the International Space Station Research and Development Conference located this year in Washington, D.C. This will be the third year that Talking Space will be covering this conference. In the past, we've gotten exclusive interviews with astronauts 
including one of them that was the first four selected for the commercial crew program, SUNY Williams, on the day it was announced. We had interviews with Bill Gerstemeyer. We had interviews with some of the other heads of the ISS program who have since left. Uh, we've had talks from Elon Musk, who will be speaking again this year. Uh, also scheduled to speak is Robert Bigelow and a lot of the other private companies. Uh, a bunch of astronauts, including uh, Kate Rubens, who recently came back from the International Space Station, as well as JAXA astronaut Soichi Noguchi. It's an amazing lineup this year, and uh, we will hope to bring you as much of that as possible. So we hope you'll listen to that on our next episode. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And I just want to give a shout out to a gentleman uh, by the name of Frank Mooring, who just retired from Aviation Week uh, after a very long career. He was very, very kind to us uh, in the beginning and really, really reached out and, and kind of kind of showed these young pups uh, as we were uh, the ropes and 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 gave us some some insights so Frank again thank you for all the time and all of the the hard work that you put in over at aviation week and um and enjoy enjoy your retirement sir thanks a bunch exactly he's been on this show a few times so if you're feeling nostalgic go listen to those episodes again and uh, congratulations and best of luck to you in the future there Frank and thank you as well for joining us Mark Ratterman Good to be here as always, and uh, Gene, I'm glad you brought that up about Frank Mooring. He's leaving some big shoes to fill at Aviation Week. Yeah, he is indeed, Mark. If that is not the understatement of the century. Yeah. But in the meantime, we've got our shoes to keep filling here, and uh, we'll be back with our next episode in about two weeks, and we hope you'll join us for that. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 